And thanks to Crime Malt, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, editor of Australian Brews News. Actually, I have to say, Pete, I, I'm not even going to get around to interviewing you before I have to make a correction. <laughs> I'll be introducing you before I have to make a correction. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, former editor of Australian Brews News. And as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. G'day, listeners. G'day, Matt. The publisher of Australian Brews News, former editor. <laughs> I'm so wrapped that we are. We've got to the point. We've obviously grown enough now that we have a former editor. We have. A, well, uh, we've still got. We've um, still got about six to go before we can equal beer and brewer. But I mean, we're getting there. But uh, well, yes. Uh, big news today, and uh, this will be out. This podcast will be out four or five days after. But yeah, no. Uh, James Atkinson has um, just come on to edit Australian Brews News, and. Uh, well, I guess technically I've always been the publisher, but it never—it was seemed like a, such a very grand term for something that was always a little bit half baked, the way that Australian Brews News is. But um, was, much was, as the, but not is. Is yes, exactly. Oh, we're, we're, clearly, we're doing well. Clearly, we're we're moving into um, you know like uh, mega corporation status because we we put two people on in the last uh, in the last month. Well, yeah, it, to be fair, you know Australian Brews News has been around for six years and. Uh, it's as I said in the announcement today. You know, look, we've we've always concentrated on quality content. We've uh, we've reported what matters. We've been, dare I say, very influential in the beer market. We've you know broken a few exclusives, uh, rattled a few uh, wasp nests, but regularity and consistency and you know style have never been our thing. Not been but, our strong point. No, no. our strong suit. But after six years, uh, you know, look, when, when you certainly it's when you're time to grow traffic, up, isn't it, Matt? It's time to grow up. And look, Pete, you and I are very good at what we do, and some of those administrative things aren't them. So, um, yeah, no, looking at um, how many people read us, how you know, dare I say, influential we have been, you know, it seemed a little bit of uh, it, it seemed important to you know, live up to people's expectations for what we are. And uh, James left the shout. The, the the shout is probably the – it's always hard to get figures, but I would hazard a guess that the shout is the most highly trafficked general beverage website in Australia. And um, certainly, to be fair to it, um, more uh, or more more accessible by trade or more useful – I don't want to say more useful to the trade, but it, I guess – Very trade-focused, It's more yes. its focus, yeah. So, so it talk, talks about pub sales and those sorts of things. But James um, – has been editing it for a few years, and he uh, has a real interest in craft beer or in in beer, and so he really led their um, coverage of beer. Um, and I, I enjoyed reading his his writing. And uh, yeah, with, with that background and his interest in beer, when I heard that he'd left, um, had a bit of a beer with him and asked him what his next project was. And uh, he didn't. He was just taking a bit of a break, and uh, so I had a chat, and he came on. So very exciting. Um, and we'll, we'll see, uh, you know, see what he whether it's a good match and uh, whether we can really take Australian Brews News to the next level. It, it all sounds very much like we're going to start talking about synergies and um, you know cost you know, <laughs> cross pollination <laughs> of ideas and and, yeah, and all, soon we'll all, be downsizing and so yeah, listeners, you may see a little bit of a um, a little bit more advertising. In it because you know James needs to make a salary, but none of which will come at a cost of the uh, independent thinking no. and the uh, you know all, all of those things. And that was something and, that and, and in truth, it'll still be more uh, supporters of what we do rather than 
advertisers of what they do. Absolutely, you you won't be seeing uh, you know the the latest uh, strawberry contract brewed thing advertising on the site. Um, we, we have been very lucky, and it, to, to be fair, the, the we've called them sponsors because much the same as the interview that we we're having a little bit later with Pete Brown, um, it wouldn't happen without them. But we've never gone out and so said, look. Would you buy advertising on our site? It's been people who have approached us. We love what you do. We want to see you able to do it. So there might be a bit of a broadening about that, but it's always our con our website grew because of the quality of the content, um, and we want to keep that going. So yeah, so that's a long way of saying I'm no longer the editor of Australian Brews News, um, and we might even get James on um, from time to time to talk about the, the beer news and, uh, I- introduce you to him. But, um, mate, that's probably enough of that little chestnut. What except, else has been except happening? Except for thanking, uh, Cryer Malt. Well, we thank Cryer Malt when we came in and, uh, oh, mate, I was about no, to didn't. come, I was about to come to, uh, a nice little segue for Cryer Malt, um, okay. because I caught up with David last weekend, Stone, uh, Stone and Wood had their annual Stone Brew Day and, uh, I was invited down. It was the third or fourth time I've been down to, to see their little Stone Brew, but, David Cryer was there, so I got to have a good chat with David and uh, you know, thanked him for his um, support of the podcast, but most importantly for his, um, uh, how do I say, patience with uh, maybe our not, you know, most sponsors would expect something for their money and uh, we've never really delivered on that. But that's what makes David Cryer such a good champion of craft beer and such a, a great bloke to deal with for craft brewers. And, uh, yeah, the podcast certainly wouldn't be able to uh, to, to come out without his support. So uh, thank you to Cryer Malt. And uh, listeners, um, keep an eye out for the Stone Brew. Um, it, it, always a great day. The, the Stone Brew, of course, is the Stein beer, that very traditional means of beer going back to a time before we had the industrial brewing techniques medieval where you could, times medieval times when you couldn't just uh, you know turn a turn a cock um, light a match and uh, bring a huge volume of beer to boiling point they used to have to uh, add hot rocks um, you know white hot rocks to the kettle to uh, to get it to that stage which of course had an influence on the flavor of the beer as they scalded some of the sugars and stoner wood um, it's a very nice fit for what they do and uh yeah they, they do an annual one-off uh, stone brew day but um they, they've done that a few times but i was lucky enough to get to try um a sneak preview of their beers of the earth series have you seen much about that prop we published a media release about that a week ago yes have, have some um, chilling in my fridge as we speak oh you you've got yours yep. I, mine must have got lost in the post because i don't actually have bottles and i'm really it, it's Maybe it's a state of the beer market, which again segues neatly into the interview that we'll soon be having with Pete Brown. But you know, there, there's a lot of um, craft beer craziness going on. You know, think of a interesting ingredient, think of a crazy beer name, and uh, throw it all together and see what comes. And uh, great, lot of excitement in, in the market. But Stone and Wood have just come out with this range of six beers, and I've called them noble beer style. So we're looking at a Czech Pilsner a London Porter, a German Hefeweizen, a... Uh, American IPA. And an Australasian Pale Ale. Now, there's one missing from that little number. Anyway, but, but there are six beers, and uh, all of them are very true to style. So um, we're not seeing too, too much of the... Well, actually, having said that, it's an American IPA, so automatically that's a little bit of a change from a 
from from the noble style and the Australasian pale ale uses Australasian beers, but they're, they're, they're not looking for zaniness. They're just sort of looking for celebrations of great beer styles. And mate, I, I thought they were cracking. I really, really enjoyed them. And perhaps most of all was the wheat beer and the Czech Pilsner because they were so subdued. Um, but it, it straight away tasting them, it took me back to uh, a, a, a trip through Central Europe. A time and a place, yeah, exactly. Um, so nothing Oops. flash. So um, we might we might move on. Anything new for you, Pete? Anything that you want to talk about? No, not since last week. I think we should get straight in and, and speak to our guests, shouldn't we? First of all, no, a media release uh, landed on my desk from uh, Beerbud, who have a website where you can buy um, a, a range. You know, they, they put together some uh, craft beer gift packs and uh, you know, beer of the month type club they've uh, come out they're the latest to come out with a, a crowdfunding scheme um sounded to me it sort of sounded like an interesting use for crowdfunding prop where you could give money um that allowed them to go overseas and import beer but it didn't necessarily um give you beer to try so i, I had a few questions about it and uh, I, I started that interview with um can you tell us about what crowdfunding is yeah, so crowdfunding has, um, I guess, started uh, become a recent phenomenon in the last um, couple of years, um, and effectively, it's um, you know it's, uh, utilizing the the kind of collaborative nature of a lot of industries and getting consumers involved in in helping bring, I think, initially kind of support causes or bring products to life that maybe otherwise wouldn't have been funded. Um, so what you typically get is people will all list a campaign, and and then in, in return for pledging their support, um, there's you know people typically offer various types of rewards. So, you know, either being able to pre-order a product and, and getting to level of demand that the, the product can then be made or brought in, um, or offering unique experiences and, and, and great offers and things like that. Um, and it's been, you know, I think it's been done quite largely in the US. Um, and then obviously the, the rest of the world has been, been catching up on it. Um, and, start, you know, platforms like Possible and Indiegogo and Kickstarter um, are really starting to take off um, in Australia. And I think we've seen a, a number of projects um, I guess beer is probably being one that hasn't really been done on a large scale in Australia yet, um, but there's been some some very big um, crowdfunding ones um, overseas. Um, I don't know if people might have seen the Stone Brewing one. They raised two and a half million on Indiegogo to help set up a, a, a new brewery. Um, closer to home, you've got guys like New Zealand's um, Renaissance Brewing. They raised just over half a mil as well as Yeasty Boys um, um, very recently. I guess both of those um, were looking at building something that didn't yet exist. Um, you guys are raising funds to bring beers in that already exist. So you're looking at funding to make a purchase of a product that you will then sell to the people that give crowdfunding. Is that correct? Correct. So what, what tends to happen with, with the international beers, um, some of them do make their way into Australia at the moment by some of the, the distributors that the brewers do use. Um, but these Beers are typically pretty difficult to get hold of for the average consumer. Um, they'll go to a few kind of specialist bottle shops. Um, so what we want to do is one, um, get um, work with those guys and get those beers online so that people can get them easily delivered to their doors um, nationwide, um, which would be a first time for a lot of people, um, as well as look at bringing in beers that aren't in the country at all um, and working with those breweries and, and, and everyone involved to, to get those to the consumers as well. So our goal is just to build the, you know, the largest and, and, and best um uh, selection of craft beer, um, both Australian and international for consumers, um, and give them the best experience and, and you know, really try to try help grow the industry and, and, and awareness in general. 
We, we, we might come back to the to the beer selection um, and some of the beers that you've uh, mentioned in your video are available here. But just looking through the um, offers or the, the, the options that people have when they go to the possible page, yeah. um, you, you can give 10 or $20 um, uh, you know, or pledge 10 or $20. And on my reading of it, that means that if, if I pledge $20, uh, you get the money, um, it goes towards your... Uh, project um, and essentially um, I get a thank you from you guys for giving you $20. I don't get any beer for that. I just get told in advance when beers will be available. Is that correct? Correct. So the, the, there's a variety of awards. So, so the, the lowest one that you mentioned, the $20, that gives you VIP access um, to our, our unique pre-sale window. So whenever we do get new beers on board, um, or special releases or things like that, you follow the VIP members and you'll be first to, to know about all those offers um, and any special offers we have. Um, and then it goes up in, in size rewards. So, for example, the $75 reward, people can pre-order a mixed case. So the first mixed cases that we um, curate for the new beers we bring in, they'll be the first to get those. Um, and then it goes up, um, I guess, to what we think is the, the most attractive ones where you have an opportunity to, to lock in 15% discounts for a variety of one, three or five years. Um, which essentially is giving you access to, to wholesale prices, and that's on any beer across our site, um, and it's an unlimited supply. Okay, but, but the only uh, option that, that involves getting beer is the $75 one, is that correct? So if I uh, give $75, I will get a case of 16 when they arrive, or does that just entitle me to buy the first case of 16 when it arrives? No, that, 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 that means for that $75, you, when we bring in the first case that we curate, you'll be sent that mixed case for that $75. So that's effectively you're basically pre-ordering and getting access to the first mixed cases that we bring out. Um, with the other beers, the other rewards, although you're not actually purchasing a specific beer, it's giving you the discount so that you can use that across any, any to purchase any beers on the site. So I, I guess if I'm... Uh making the $100 pledge or the $250 pledge, I either really like the idea of having access to a wider range of beers or I'm planning on buying enough beer at the 15% discount that I'm making, that I'm saving money in the long term. Is that right? Because you don't actually get, if I give you $100, um, I don't actually get any beer for that. I just get the right to buy beer at a cheaper price. Correct, yes. Yeah. So, so, so you're effectively um, pre-purchasing and, and locking in that discounts on an unlimited amount of beer. Looking at some of the other um, crowdfunding campaigns, and th this, ep this episode is going to be a little bit of a crowdfunding because we're also speaking to Pete Brown, who is uh, an English book uh, beer writer who is currently crowdfunding to, uh, to, to source his new book. Now, Pete's got an established track record of writing. The publishing industry has changed uh, quite dramatically over the last uh, decade or so, and it's very hard to... Uh, get the resources to do the travel involved in the book that he wants. So he's uh, saying to people, look, you basically buy the book up front and you can you know, pay for a, a premium version and you get, um, by making the book possible to write in the first place, uh, you can either just get the book itself or you can get a hardcover version or I'll sign it for you. If, you, if you're very generous, um, I'll come and present a beer tasting for you in addition to, to the book. So you're creating something that wouldn't otherwise be there. I guess um, look, looking at the model that you guys are adopting, these beers already exist. Why is um, crowdsourcing a good way to go in, in, in this case for you? 
So, so two points in terms of saying that already exists. So yes, the, the, the beers exist themselves, obviously, the, the breweries are there and the breweries are making them. But I guess the, the reason we started Beer Bud in, in the first place is that with this explosion in craft beers, notwithstanding that there are all these beers, awesome breweries popping up and great beers, as a consumer, um, it was very difficult to, to find them. Um, a lot, you know, they're not ranged in a lot of the, the larger stores. If you happen to live next to or close to a really awesome little uh, bottle store that specializes in these, that, that's amazing. And those people obviously have access to some of these beers. Um, but for the vast majority of people who don't do that, um, there wasn't an easy way to get access to this huge selection. Um, and what we wanted to do was to create an online destination that made it easy for all those people to hop online um, and order these beers and get them delivered to their door. Um, and so from our, from our view, that's something new that we're creating. And that's what we're really excited about is to really help grow the industry and make these beers accessible um, nationwide. And that's, that's what, we, what we're really excited about. And that, that, that's uh, what the, the Beer Bud business is doing. But I, I guess that's similar to, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, the International Beer Shop uh, from Leaderville in WA that's uh, been mailed ordering uh, beer for, you know, well over a decade. Uh, there's uh, Slow Beer in Melbourne. Um, there are one or two others who also mail order. What does Beer Bud do differently um, that those guys aren't doing already? So, so, I mean, the, the, there will always be a, a number of players in the market, but, um, our, you know, our, our goal is we want to build and have the biggest range of and, and best range of beers available um, and get it to consumers at the at the best prices and as efficiently as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we, we, we've got a really great offering at the moment, um, and we're just looking to build that and, and get that better. Um, and, you know, the more funds you can raise, the more beers you can buy. Obviously, beers, you need to purchase them up front. Um, so that the more money we can raise, um, the more we can get up front, and the, the wider the variety and, and the bigger the, the range we, we can offer consumers. Um, looking at the video that you've got on the possible site, um, the uh, brands that you talk about, you talk about Stone, you talk about Founders, you talk about McKellar, you talk about Evil Twin. Those beers are already available in Australia. Um, you know, they're being imported um, by uh other importers who have uh, exclusive agreements. How are you going to source those uh, through this crowdfunding, or how does this crowdfunding make those available to you if they're already available in Australia? Some of those beers are, as you correctly say, are, are um, imported by um, existing wholesalers in Australia. So in that scenario, we'd be working very closely with those wholesalers, most of whom we work with already um, to source uh, some of the Australian beers. Um, and we'd be working closely with them to, to purchase those beers and then make them available to consumers. Obviously, those importers are, um, are wholesalers and, and they'll um, sell to a variety of bottle shops and other places. But notwithstanding mm -hmm. that, um, a lot of those beers are still difficult. And we've had a lot of consumers say, you know, we don't have access to these beers, even though they know they are around. So we want to work both, both closely with those existing importers and distributors, as well as other breweries to, to make sure that their, their beers can be widely available um, Australia-wide. How does the crowdfunding help that then? Because you know those importers have already gone out and purchased the beer; they're available in Australia. It would just be a matter of you buying them off the importers, and then if there is, you'd imagine if there was demand for them um, through your service, then people would just buy them in in a more traditional business setting. So, so from a, a I guess a consumer in the streets perspective, it's very difficult. These are wholesalers, so they don't have access to these guys to get their beers. So. There needs to be a retailer that, that has these beers and that has purchased them. Obviously, there's a, thousands of international beers and a number of ranges. So to, to invest in, to be able to buy all that stock and make it available to consumers to have it delivered to the door, 
um, costs a lot of money, and, and that's what the crowdfunding is, is is helping us do, is to be able to go and pre-purchase all these beers, either from the breweries or, or, or from their distributors, um, so that we can then make them available online. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just trying to follow, because, you know, I, I look at Slow Beer in Melbourne, for example, that has a similar model. They purchase those beers now, they offer them through their website, and then they sell them, um, and it's that sort of pull-through of, of consumer demand. I'm not sure... Um, it, it, it sounds like the crowdfunding is really in a way to de-risk your business um, approach as opposed to provide a service that's not already there. We, we, we don't say it like that at all. I mean, the, so yet, yes, we could go and buy, you know, one or two cases of, and slowly build up the beers. But what we want to do is be able to offer a, a huge range quickly. Um, and we want to be able to offer those beers um, and have them in stock and, and have the ability to dispatch them immediately for consumers. Um, and, and in return, um, we feel we're offering some some awesome awards. You know, if you're a beer lover and you purchase, you know, regular beers and, and you want to keep trialing and tasting all the new beers, to be able to get that lock in a 15% discount for, you know, certain periods, um, we think is, is, is really attractive um, and offers great value to, to get those beers, which ordinarily we'd look to sell at great prices. But when you add the discount in, um, we think that's a great consumer proposition, um, you know, and, and have had some great feedback from consumers already. Okay, I'm I'm just doing the the calculations in my head though. But if I give two hundred and fifty dollars for fifteen percent, if it was ten percent, I'd be needing to be buying twenty seven hundred dollars worth of beer over three years to get that money back. So really, they're they're, they're paying you to to do it, and then they're paying for the beers, but just at a slightly cheaper price. Yeah, exactly. So if, if, if I mean, if if you're someone who only buys a case a year, then those rewards wouldn't be the ones appropriate for you and that's why we've added the ability in that scenario you can rather just pre-purchase the next case um, and actually just pre-purchase those beers if, if that is more suitable to you whereas if you're a beer lover and, and you know we've got some of our you know our customers spend you know significantly more than that on beer in a year um, and you know obviously then then our wholesale um, reward for them is much more is more attractive um, so all we wanted to do is create a, you know, different awards that would be suitable for different people depending on your buying styles and, and, and what you want to do. Okay, beer is a fairly perishable product. Importing beer you know, is always a little bit risky. Um, many of the, the, the bigger um, importers have gone to a refri- refrigerated um, shipping. Um, they're, they're looking at cold storing it. Have you guys got those processes in place? You were saying that you, you wanted to get a, a big volume of a big selection so you had it on hand for when people wanted it. No, so, so we're looking at all of that. So it, it, obviously, um, I think if you're importing beer from anywhere overseas and there's going to be a, a long journey, it, it has to be a refrigerated containing to ensure quality. Um, so, you know, all the, all the beers, if we're using an existing importer, we'd obviously want to work with distributors and make sure that the beers are transported in the best possible ways. Um, and if we were to do anything direct or with any other breweries that aren't already here, then we'd want to make sure we use the best best um, inbreed processes. But th- those will ultimately be dependent by... Um, you know, the funds raised and, and also as part of the, the crowdfunding campaign, we're asking people to to let us know via our social media what their favorite beers are that they can't get, which are the ones they want us to try to add and, and speak to breweries and distributors and, and, and get in here. So a lot of it will, will be determined by what the most popular beers are, what our customers would like us to focus on first um, as, as part of that process. Okay, $25,000 is the target amount. How did you, you, you calculate that um, as being the, the amount that you needed to make this go ahead? So that, that, that's just from our, from our own internal calculations of what we, we believe we would need to, to be able to put a, a, a reasonable order in of, of, a, of a nice variety of beers. 
um, to, to kind of launch the, the international things. Um, obviously, any, the, any more money raised than that, um, you know, just means we can we can purchase more beers and, and a greater variety of beers. That sort of volume, you'd be buying a shipping container worth from one destination. You you wouldn't, for example, be able to um, buy a portion of a container from the states and a portion from the new breweries in the UK and a portion from uh, Denmark. Is is that right? Um, we, we we have we haven't locked in yet whether that would be one from a specific destination or whether it be from a variety of places or whether we'd potentially do you know just certain US beers first or whether we'd look to do a variety of countries first. A lot of that will depend on on the final quantum as well as the the feedback we get from consumers um, as part of this campaign. Um, you know if, if there's a, a a significant amount of consumers that particularly want it ends up that they're looking for beers from a particular place and uh, we might focus on that uh, geography first. Um, those types of breweries first, the type of style would be at first. Um, it, it's very much um, we're leaving it open and, and waiting for the campaign to finish and, and you know, we'll assess all the feedback um, and then take that all on board. Wonderful. Now, where can people find out more information uh, on, on the possible? What are the addresses? Uh, how can they follow you uh, and those sorts of things? So they can just go to our, our website, beerbud, um, www.beerbud.com.au forward slash crowdfunding. Um, and all the information's in, and that's got links through to our possible page, um, and they can see everything else on, on the site, and all, you know, already got over a number of Australia's best brewers on board, so and those are available all for purchase now. Um, this crowdfunding campaign is very much about us expanding international and, and, and looking to get some awesome beers to all the consumers. Terrific. Now, uh, it's open this week, um, and today we're, we're recording this on the 27th of March. Um, so we'll be going up uh, towards the end of next week. When does the uh, campaign conclude? So how long have people got to uh, to pledge their support for it? So there's uh, there's 40, 42 days left, so just over a month um, for people to still get involved. In, in the comments that people are making, is there any front runners in the breweries that they would like to see uh, available through you? Um, not at the moment. It's, it's been, as we would expect, quite quite diverse. Um, I think you, you've, you definitely see some of the... Um, more well-known names that are coming up, but also we've seen some some pretty cool diverse stuff. Um, some some of which I hadn't, I hadn't even heard of. Um, which I think you know there's so so much great beer out there that it'd be impossible to know everything. Um, so yeah, it's it's been, it's been really interesting. I think it's too early to tell to have a where, if there's a, a particular one coming through. But um, no, it's, it's great and, and great to see the consumer engagement and, and feedback. Um, and you know I think it just goes to the whole industry as a whole, which is very collaborative and. Uh, everyone working together, and, and it, yeah, it's just it's just awesome. Hey, actually, I guess that's one other question. If if you know, for example, Stone, uh, one of the um, international importers, uh, uh, went through a, actually a number of international importers have been chasing Stone for a while, um, and Stone was very reluctant to commit their uh, beers to the international shipping channels because of uh, con concerns about the the quality. What happens if one of the uh, front runners in the, the, the supporters' targets uh, decides that they don't want to send the beer to Australia. Would you still go ahead and look at buying it on through alternative markets, or it, it will, is this something you'll only deal uh, legitimately through breweries? Oh no, of course. The, the biggest thing for us as, as a business is, is our brand and reputation. Um, and you know, obviously, we want to offer the best range at best prices and offer the convenience of having it delivered to your door. But uh, you know, number one is the quality. Um, if you send out anything of poor quality. A consumer is never going to come back to you. So quality is number one to us, um, and working very closely with the breweries and their distributors, um, if, if they use them to, to make sure that happens. So we only ever buy through um, 
appropriate the official channels um, and would never risk the reputation on, on our business of, of doing anything else. I mean, there's nothing worse than, than buying a beer that, that's gone off for poor quality. Um, this is a bad taste in your mouth, which is bad for both the retail and the brewery and all involved. So, um, you know, if there isn't a brewery who hasn't come in before, um, you know, we would obviously love to try it. We'll do what we can to get the beers there. And if there was a, you know, way to transport the beers that they were comfortable with in a process that they were happy with that ensured their quality and they're prepared to do that, then that would be awesome. Um, but obviously it will be very much dependent on, one, we've got our own quality standards that we want to make sure we tick. Um, and then two, working closely with the breweries and, and all parties involved to make sure that that is the best quality. Mark Wilcott, thanks very much for joining. Uh, we'll make sure that we put links to uh, all of this in the show notes, including the possible page and the Beerbud site. But uh, good luck uh, raising the money. Hopefully you'll find uh, enough people who share your vision. Great. Thanks very much, Matt. Thanks for your time. In the garden, what a Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. There you go, mate. That was the Beer Bud Boys. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably. I, I think we leave that as an interview of its own. Um, you know, I'd, I might have sounded a little bit sceptical. I'll, I'll leave that to the listeners to decide. You never know what... Um, tone you strike for for the listener but I, I was asking questions that I wanted answered and that if I was going to put my heart earned in I'd want to ask and I'll, I think we'll leave it at that but um, m- moving on we also have an interview uh, and I'm, I was really excited uh, to finally um, tee up this interview with uh, Pete Brown one of the you know great beer writers of the modern age um, He's had some uh, four books, Sheets of the Wind, uh, Three Sheets of the Wind, Man Walks Into a Pub, uh, Hops and Glory, and Shakespeare's Local. Um, really, um, he's been described as a beer, uh, the Bill Bryson of beer writing, and I think that's a very fair um, quote. It segues nicely from our previous interview because he does have a crowdfunding uh, book out under a new um, uh, model for publishing books in the UK. But first of all, we start looking at the London craft beer scene and I ask him, where is craft in London now? Craft beer in the UK right now is in, I think, a, a very exciting place. It's uh, It's gone mainstream in the last couple of years. It's no longer uh, the preserve of beer geeks, beer fans, whatever we want to call ourselves, beer aficionados. Uh, I was at an event on Saturday, which was a London craft brewer's um case really it was kind of craft beer and independent record labels in spitalfields market and old victorian market and i went to the first one four years ago wandering around between half a dozen brewers chatting to them um just kind of sampling their beers and that kind of thing went back this time and it was like being at the glastonbury festival you you couldn't get near the stands you 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 would just you know it would take you half an hour to walk 30 yards it was so full of people um and a completely different audience just looking around this crowd that i was jammed in by just realizing that these were people that i'd never seen at a sort of traditional beer festival or or anything like that um it, it's not our thing anymore it's, it's it's grown bigger 
And, and it's very exciting. And uh, the, the reason that we got you on uh, to, to chat was because of a recent Guardian article that you wrote, which is, you know, beer um, in the Guardian is big, big time. But it was, a, it was a lovely article that almost looked at both ends of the, the spectrum from the, you know, uh, young fellow who's got the um, hop tattoo yeah. uh, on, on his arm. But it's not just any hop tattoo. It's an experimental hop tattoo. Um, so it's you know, n- n- none of these uh, Cascade or you know, uh, <laughs> Citra hops. It, it's an experimental tattoo. But then you also finished it very nicely um, talking about the, uh, the gentleman who turned up and uh, talked about how exciting... You know, craft beer was he and he didn't really seem like you you're everyday craft drinker no that's it um the guardian asked me to write that article because um craft beer last week has just been uh adopted by the office office of national statistics as one of the uh items that they use in the basket of goods which which calculates the rate of inflation so this this basket of goods is always kind of fairly there's always a new story about what it says about us as a as a nation, you know, when, when things get dropped because people aren't buying them anymore. So this thing, uh, you know, it's a, it's a representative sample of what who we are as a as a nation. And, and this year, craft beer and electronic cigarettes were included for the first time. So uh, so that kind of, again, is further proof, if anyone needed, that, that this is a mainstream proposition now. Either that or craft beer and is being lumped in the same category as electronic cigarettes, which probably isn't a great association. But this is the thing. I mean, it's, it's when you see the changing face of of our towns and cities, really. And uh, actually, I suppose there is a little bit of a of a divide here. But when you when you walk round, when you walk round a, a a sort of fairly dynamic city, not just London. I think a lot of people think London is a craft beer thing. Uh, when you walk round London or Leeds or Manchester or Sheffield or or Bristol, um, if it's a city you haven't been to for a year or so. The first thing that strikes you is the number of craft beer bars and bottle shops that are there now that weren't there before. And if you walk down, if you walk around fairly run down, more sort of deprived areas uh, like Barnsley, where I come from, there's lots of shops selling e-cigarettes that weren't there uh, last time you were there. So it's uh, it's quite an accurate sort of state of uh, of how we're developing, really. It's it's an interesting contrast then because another article that I, I read of yours and uh, going back to the 18th of December and I'll, I'll link to these in the show notes, but you talked about why JD Weatherspoons is fast becoming one of my favourite craft beer bars and uh, you know you, you've got a fairly uh, long-standing antipathy towards JD Weatherspoons, <laughs> but you 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 recount the story um, and and it's something that again Peter and I have talked about where you walked into a. Uh, a craft beer pub. Um, you tried a cask beer. It really did nothing for you, and it was almost six quid a uh, a throw. Then you tried a, another craft. Beer. Well, no, you were going to try craft beer, but again, it was uh, you know well over five quid yeah. a throw. And you went to the Weatherspoons. That for those in Australia is you know a, a, almost like an ALH hotel, a a, a Woolies pub. Um, but they had a very good quality beer that was brewed under license. Um, but that it you know it was less than half the price of the inverted commas, authentic, craft or uh, real ale. We're at that stage now, aren't we, where it it is mainstreaming and with that will come a whole lot of challenges for craft beer, uh, most particularly around price and uh, availability. That's it. I mean, the Brits, I don't don't know what it's like uh, in Australia, but the Brits are very, very clever at uh, seeing someone do something genuinely interesting and new that they can charge a premium for. Uh, and then going, all oh, right. So you're charging that premium, right? We'll move our prices up just to below where you are without changing anything. Um, 
and that, there's a frustration there with craft beers. So I think this, the the price thing started off when you get something like say a Stone Ruination IPA uh, from uh, from California that's being imported. Uh, Stone are incredibly passionate about their quality, and in the US they guarantee that that beer is chilled uh, from the point it leaves the brewery to the point it arrives in the drinker's hand. Uh, and obviously that costs a shitload of money. If you're going to export that beer to the UK, that requires chilled containers, uh, chilled shipping containers, which is really expensive. So when a pint of stone crops up on a bar in London, it's five ninety five for half a pint. And, and there's a very good reason why it costs that much, because of the cost involved in distribution and shipping. And so other... other um, Publicans, I guess, will see. All oh, right, they're selling that pint of IPA. They're selling that IPA for five ninety five a half. Right. Well, I've got this IPA that was brewed in London. I'll sell that for six pound fifty a pint then. And and there's no reason for it because uh, people don't understand why the why the first drink is so expensive. And so there's just profiteering going on. There's a, a great brewer called Colonel in South London, legendary uh, craft brewer. Two pubs near me. One of them sells Colonel beer at uh, four pound eighty a pint. Uh, round the corner, less than hundred yards away, the same pint for six pounds fifty a pint. Uh, there's no justification for it, and this is one of the worries with mainstreaming: is that uh, it's trendy. You charge a premium for it. Uh, people buy it uh, if it's not kept in great condition. Uh, they might not buy it again. And as soon as craft uh, gin becomes uh, more popular, or the new wave of cocktails comes along, uh, the danger is I think that people will walk away from craft beer. And and again, it's almost it's very interesting you say that because that's one of the conversations that we've had is that uh, people forget that uh, in my view people forget that mainstream beer didn't become mainstream just because of the sheer bastardry of the big brewers. They grew to the size that they did because they provided a quality product at a cheap price and made it conveniently available. And all of the other brewers that couldn't compete often fell by the wayside and. Uh, when, when we see that sort of pricing for the uh, craft brewing, then there is a bit of a backlash as people find uh, you know, beers that may be only you know, 70 to 80 percent as good, um, in inverted commas, but at a significantly cheaper price. And uh, just looking at the comments of your um, J.D. Weatherspoon's article, uh, you know, some, some very well-known beer names, including Ron Pattinson, you know, saying the joys of Weatherspoons, talking about that it was child-friendly and you can't go past the food offering. And those sorts of things do provide a compelling offer that does start to see the creeping away from the purity of craft beer. I think a pub has always been about more than the beer. Uh, a, a good, a great pub has always served good beer, but it's always been about, about an awful lot more as well. And, uh, and my problem with some of the craft beer bars is they follow a certain aesthetic uh, which involves stripping out old soft furnishings. Uh, the only food offer is sliders, pulled pork, and dirty burgers. Oh, so, so that's that, that's the case in London as well. That's very much the case uh, where I am. Yes, you have these you have these big empty boxes. And I actually found out that uh, I wrote about this a few years ago. I said my problem with craft beer pubs is that uh, is that I can't hear conversation once there's more than six people in there because there's no soft furnishings to absorb the sound. And I found out that when you hit when you hit your forties, you lose some of the edges of your hearing. So, <laughs> so craft beer pubs are actually unfriendly to people to to people of a certain age. And you go back to a pub that's got soft furnishings, welcoming environment, friendly bar staff, uh, kind of 
people who are more concerned with providing good service than how they look behind the bar. Um, and I'm not trying to diss all craft beer pubs here. I still drink at craft beer pubs more often than than not. But but sometimes when it's about more style than substance, you think, yeah, why am I here? Why not? Why not just go to a place that's got a warm, welcoming atmosphere? And it's, I think it, there is that thing where it's, it's about image. It's about where you're seen and what you seem to be drinking for some people. Um, and my goal has always been, I want to get the most excellent beers in the world I've ever tasted available in in my ordinary local you know it's uh if you've got a pub that's got a great atmosphere it's got the football on the telly and nice beer garden uh that's often more important than the quality of the beer sometimes do, do you see that there is a risk that uh as craft beer has become so fashionable and as fashions change that we might lose the baby with the bathwater that everyone will sort of start moving back to say well that craft beer thing was a nice fad but you know we'll, we'll go back to what we drank before, or do you think that the tastes have permanently changed? Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think I think you have to break it down a little bit because uh, th- this is the key question now. Um, and there's an idea I've got at the moment, which is that when you're when you're fight when you're fighting against when you're fighting to overthrow the status quo, it's very simple. So when when we're all champions of great beer and most people are drinking really bland beer, we know we know what our mission is. We know what our goal is. We want to we want to popularize great beer. When it works, you're like, shit, what do we do now? And people start getting very nervous because you, you can see it the campaign for Real Ale. We've got to save Real Ale. Well, guess what? Real Ale is saved. It's in growth. And you see Cameron now start to get very nervous and start to split and all these factions appearing as to what they should do next. And the same thing's happened with craft beer. It's like, so you see people who are passionate about craft beer either say, when is the bubble going to burst? Or they say, oh, it's not craft beer anymore. I'm off somewhere else. Um, or they fight to preserve a certain purity of craft beer versus what they see as a dilution, you know. Um, I can't, I mean, the fact is that the, the momentum is unsustainable. Uh, we, we cannot carry on having the breadth of media coverage, the breadth of new brewery openings, the breadth of, uh, of new beer styles and, uh, and, and different flavors and so on out there. That is unsustainable because that is, that is the, the heat of a, of a, of a fad that's got a lot of momentum. But, but when, that, when that burns itself out, the idea that we might go back to drinking, uh, you know, cowling in the UK or, or VB in, in Australia does seem a bit absurd to me, that, that having been exposed to all these different flavours and different styles, we're just going to go, you know what, I'm bored of all this variety and all this flavour. Uh, I think I'll go back to something boring and monotonous. So, so I, I think... You know, I, th- I think. Um, oh, oh I, wrote, I think I wrote about it in my blog. So yeah, the difference between a revolution and a fad is that when a fad when a fad burns out, that there's no difference from how it was before. A, a revolution always comes to an end, but when the revolution comes to an end, the status quo has changed. Uh, and I think that's what we're going to be looking at with craft beer. I think the the revolution will end, but there will be permanent changes as as a result. One of the worrying uh, sentences, one of the things that jumped out of, of the Guardian article was you uh, included the sentence, the number of breweries in the UK has trebled since the millennium to more than 1,400, despite the total beer market shrinking by around a quarter during that time. And I tweeted in, in sharing the, um, the, the article with uh, my Twitter and Facebook followers, I um, shared the article generally, but pulled that line out as being something that's a bit of a concern for the, for the reasons that you just identified, is that... You know, will when the fad does peter out, um, how many of those new breweries are going to be still standing? I think that's a really interesting question, um, and 
Um, when I look at it historically, you know, the, the thing we've been saying for a few years now is we've got more breweries around in the UK at, um, since any time uh, than the 1930s. Now, in the 1930s, the period we're comparing it to, the number of pubs and breweries was in freefall. Um, you know, it was it was declining very, very rapidly. And beer was out of fashion. People weren't going to the pub anymore. Um, and we had this many breweries. Uh, 20 years before that, we'd had three times as many. So so there was, even when the market was, was in decline, there was room for a lot more breweries than now. The difference is, back then, we didn't have these big national brands and these big global brands. And so the question really becomes about... Um, Will the big global brands always hang on to the lion's share of the market? Is is craft and is and our small brewers only ever going to be playing around the fringes of this market? In which case, you know, there's going to be some consolidation. There's going to be some fallout. The number of brewers breweries will shrink. Um, the alternative is that it's the, the, the age of the big global breweries itself was the blip and the fad, and that we're going back to something which is normality. Perhaps normality is. Uh, we all want beer from local regional brewers, and that's how we're going to do it from now on. And, and I don't really know. I think we're going to end up somewhere between the two. But uh, I think beer is something that I think we're always going to have a taste for local beer from small brewers. I, I, I think um, I'm just trying to think of any comparable markets. But you know, when, when you look at when you look at wine, I think wine's very interesting because big global brands in wine are generally seen as not being as good quality as 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 those by smaller producers and. Um, and that's extraordinary. You know, the whole reason you build a big brand is because big brands are supposed to stand for quality. Uh, and in wine, they stand the, for cheapness. The, I guess the flip side to that is that, and you see it, there are a very small set of wine aficionados who are willing to pay for the smaller boutique, whereas the much larger portion of the wine market is willing to, you know, they say, well, I can't taste rose water and uh, hydrangea yeah. in my wine. So, uh, you know, I'll just go for the cheap bottle of Plonk um, because that's good enough for me. Well, what we find here is it's quite interesting because people have their uh, people who don't have any knowledge of wine, and th this is an interesting difference. People who don't have any knowledge of wine, th there's this there's this truism that you, you never go for the house wine on a on a menu because you look cheap, so you go one up from the house wine, um, and then well, we have that rule that the best selling wine is the second cheapest. That's right, yeah, and and we have a thing if you're buying a bottle of wine to go around to someone's house for dinner, uh, you have your you have you you shop by price. You say, well, I'm not getting anything under five quid because that'll be cheap. Uh, I'm comfortable spending between five and ten pounds, and that's what most people do. And then you might say, well, this is a really special occasion, so I'm going to buy a bottle of wine that costs fifteen pounds. Um, and so we shop like that, which is bizarre. It's just kind of a proxy for for knowledge. We just assume that if a wine costs this much, that's going to be the quality. I, th I think with beer is that the price thing is still working itself out. But I could see us getting to something similar where it's like. Well, I don't really know the difference between my hops, but I know that uh, tonight calls for a hoppy pale ale rather than just an ordinary lager or something like that. I think the, 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 there's going to be some kind of weak, very weak level of base knowledge that sort of goes out into the mainstream and, and changes things, I reckon. And isn't that where the big where, where the trouble could come in at the moment? Um, and, you know, I sort of only can keep an eye on the international trends, but certainly in Australia, the two big brewers have more or less missed the boat when it comes to craft beer. They don't really get the market. And also the market has been much smaller. When you look at, uh, for example, up until 10 years ago, VB had 25% of the market. So one in four beers yeah. sold in Australia were VB. And it's still down around about 10 or 12%. Um, 
but that's still a significant part of the market. Corona, which is only available in bottle, outsells the entire 200 craft breweries put together. So craft labels are still relatively small. Yeah. Um, and it hasn't really been in their interest to to chase them. As that market grows and the, the um, brewing uh, monoliths become more and more attracted to it, they can still make most of the beers at a very good approximation of their style, but at a fraction of the cost um, and still make high margins. Will, do, do you think that the, um, you know, the, the, the mainstream palate will see those beers um, popularised or, you know, will, will people shop, be willing to buy a cheaper beer that's a close approximation to what they saw as craft? Yeah, I think we're going to get a mix, aren't we? And uh, it's all about the... It's a really difficult one because it's all about the motives of the brewer rather than uh, rather than how big they are. So I, I've spoken to some of the big brewers... Well, I've spoken to some of the some of the craft brewers that have been bought by big brewers, uh, who insist that the big brewers are not asking them to sort of compromise on the quality of the the beer, the ingredients, the brewing process. That all they're doing is investing in more modern plant and uh, better distribution uh, to build that brand to work on a bigger level. And I, I I can't I can't bring myself to to object to that. It, it doesn't feel right, but it's like, well, who am I to say that you know? guys who make really good beer aren't allowed to grow beyond a certain level and aren't allowed to make more money by partnering up with a bigger guy. It, what's very different is when you get someone making something really bland and uh, without passion, without without sort of the uh, the vision of a, of a talented brewer and just slapping a craft label on it. Um, certainly the craft market susses that kind of thing out very, very quickly uh, and ridicules it. Um, whether a mainstream drinker will do or not, uh, is a different question, and then you get to the whole point of what what is craft anyway. That's the thing. So, but I, I, th I think there's room for everybody. Uh, that's the thing. I think I think when the market grows, you know, you're talking, say say you know, those of us who've been sort of in the craft trenches for years and years, we've probably been having this conversation among about two, yeah, say been having that conversation among about two thousand people. Uh, suddenly, when there's one point five million people interested. Uh, you've you've got you've got a whole bunch of different levels and and criteria. I do think it's important that those of us who are close to it and feel that it's more than just a beer that we enjoy drinking continue to fight for the integrity and the vision. Uh, I was talking to one big brewer recently who was I, th I think all the global brewers are looking at craft and saying what what should our response be to craft beer. And I was talking to an agency working for one of them, uh, very one of, one of the biggest uh, drinks manufacturers in the world. Uh, if not the biggest, and said, do you think they could ever make a craft beer? And I said, yes, of course they could. Uh, they said, why? How, how, would, how do they make a craft beer then? And I said, let your brewer into the brewery, give him free reign to create whatever he wants. When he, when he brews that beer, don't ask any questions, just package it, put it out on the market, see what happens. And they said, oh, we can never do that. And I said, well, <laughs> I said, that's why you can't brew craft beer then. Um, because for them, new product development is a two-year process. Um, which goes through lots of gates and lots of research groups and all the rest of it, and and they're always driven to for the for the maximum possible sort of reach. So if someone says, "Well, that flavour is far too strong and hoppy for me," they'll they will dilute it because they're trying not to offend anybody. Um, and there there will be products that come out that are compromised uh, that that bear the craft label, and they may be quite tasty, and there may be people who like them, but uh, you know you you kind of do. 
the, the, the passionate sort of advocates no longer have total ownership over it. But over here in Australia, I guess we're, we're kind of you know, at the bottom of the world and we tend to have a little bit of everything from everywhere. My first trip to the UK was uh, June last year and we spent uh, overnight uh, a couple of days in York. And so all I had to drink there, I, I went to the York Brewery and I drank you know, very traditional kind of natural um, cask ales that were very different to what I could get. But to me, that was very much York. That was what I expected to get and to drink there. And in the same way that when we went to Kern, I, I filled myself on Kolsch. I, I, I thought, because when am I going to be here again? This is, this is their, their beer. I'll drink this. I drank a lot of Hefeweizens and Munich Hellas when I was in Munich. Um, is there perhaps a trend? It, it does craft beer perhaps need to say, you know what, great beer is great, but drink it at the source? I think so. I think so. And I, I think we don't, it's important that we don't forget that. So I'm noticing a sort of dual track thing. Uh, I was in Italy uh, in September. Uh, I spent a week checking out the craft beer scene in, in Tuscany, which is, which is growing really rapidly now. And there, and there are two streams there. There's one stream, which is uh, what is craft beer? Craft beer is an international phenomenon uh, that's driven by America. And uh, the main thing is to make a really hoppy IPA uh, with New World hops. And so there's brewers in, uh, you know, in Florence and uh, places like that, creating American IPAs that, that, that taste like they come from the Midwest. Um, at the same time, there are other brewers saying exactly what you're saying. Craft beer should be about, and in Italy especially, any anything good, it's about the local ingredients. So there you've got brewers making spelt beers because spelt is the local crop and using local flat, hops don't grow in Italy. So they're trying to look at alternative flavorings that do grow in Italy instead of hops. Uh, and that's what craft is for them. And I think those two streams are very important. You know, craft is as global as any, craft, craft, craft beer is as global as Budweiser. Uh, and in any country in the world, people like craft beer. A lot of them are looking for a beer made with uh, Northwest American hops. Um, but it is also about local local tradition. And we do forget that. I think there's a lot of people, uh, it, uh, the new wave of craft beer drinkers in the UK are dismissing the kind of beers you were talking about as boring brown beer. Uh, craft is this new exciting American thing. And they don't realise that the American brewers they love were inspired by the beers they're now dismissing as, as boring and old. If the, if the British traditional real ale pint didn't exist, the American craft beer movement wouldn't exist. So... These local traditions are absolutely vital and important, can't be forgotten. That uh, leads on to another interesting uh, matter <coughs> or topic. And I, I went looking on your website, and I can't remember where I saw it, but you judged in a Belgian uh, beer competition towards the end of last year. And, and, and you made the note that it was a lot of the international brewers who had uh, done very well. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, yeah, it was really surprising. The, the countries, I, I got a bit nerdy. I, got, I, I created a spreadsheet and divided the number of entries from each country by the number of awards won from each country to work out you know awards per entry and i think the i think the country that came top of that list was brazil um just creating some amazing beers you know just getting uh you know really great traditional english beer styles brewed in brazil winning awards in in belgium i think uh, i think there's something quite wonderful about that but does that in turn uh, see the traditional styles change? And, you know, I, I look at the local scene over here and you get a lot of guys who are um, working in 
craft beer pubs now who themselves have discovered beer in the last three or four years and often their first experience with um, craft beer is some of the modern interpretations of the style and when you have a craft uh, Hefeweizen for example they can be banana bombs or they can be really uh, aggressively cloved where um, the, the, the traditional German style where you know they, they talk about a little bit of bubble gum or some clove or some uh, um, banana um, but that almost becomes a caricature of the style and so yeah. when you're introduced to the style not as the uh, noble German version but as the uh, craft style you almost end up with a skewed version of what the original style was and you see that with Belgians where um, they, they become extreme versions of what they were or um, Hefeweizen or Whitbeers and then that starts skewing it when they try the original Belgian version and uh, you know the, the Belgian versions are still great even if you go back to something as commercial as Chimay Blue um, it, it, it's a crackingly good beer but it leaves them underwhelmed because it's just a good beer it's not the hyper version of the style is that a risk to the original styles yeah like like so much of this I could I, I don't I just feel like a dreadful sitting on the fence, but uh, but yeah, it, it is a real risk. Uh, the classic example is Fuller's ESB, um, which was a beer rather than a style, uh, extra special bitter. It was it was the only one, but the United States decided no, 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 that's a style because so many people wanted to copy it in America, and so the the style of ESB in the American uh, Brewing Judges Certification Program was based on Fuller's. Uh, you know, it was it was a description of what Fuller's ESB was. Two years later in a competition, Fuller's ESB was rejected for being not to style because the style had moved on. Uh, so, so it can be it can be ridiculous. It can be pathetic. But on the other hand, styles have always evolved. Um, I'm thinking back to, you know, when when Burton on Trent's Pale Ale Brewers uh, perfected brewing with pale malt and uh, Bavarian Lager Brewers came up and uh, stole samples, basically. And they took uh, British pale malt back to create golden lager. Uh, and then golden lager came back and completely destroyed the market for pale ale. So so there's always been that cross-cultural fertilization. It does mean that styles are at risk if they don't, um, if they don't measure up. But I think what we've got now is that there's a kind of globalization of that process that's happening on a much more rapid, uh, happening a much more rapid play, rapid pace. Uh, and that is a danger, I think, definitely. Uh, you've got to kind of remember the, the integrity of the original style. You know, it almost sounds like there could be a book in that, Pete. <laughs> hmm. There could well be. My latest book is, uh, is an attempt to answer not all of these questions, but certainly look at some of them. Uh, I'm writing a book about beer ingredients. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to travel to various different places, and uh, the places that have been seminal in the in the evolution of beer as we understand it now. So the, the idea actually came to me when I was standing in a hop field in Kent, uh, which is a very good uh, example of what we've been talking about, really, because there's a campaign at the moment to save the British hop, um, because we're so in love now with Cascade hops and, and all things uh, Yakima Valley. Um, there's this idea that the British hop industry is under threat so i was in this uh, this hop field in kent and uh being talked through the the different hop varieties and i started getting very lyrical because it, i was just starting to think oh all these things like challenger and admiral they've got names like battleships you know who who names these hop varieties and so on uh, and really getting carried away on a bit of a on a bit of a reverie um and then the guy sort of interrupted me and said yeah but the, the thing is now is that 50 percent of the uk hop harvest is going to the states um, because 
brewers over there want to create British style session ales now. Um, and so the British hop industry isn't under threat at all. It's, British brewers might not be using British hops anymore, but American brewers are. And um, and so that started me thinking about, you know, where these different hop varieties come from, how place makes a difference to, to hop varieties. Uh, the way that we now import a lot of hops from Slovenia, uh, because they're kind of British style hops that worked better in Slovenia and changed their character when they were cultivated there uh, and worked better than they did in Kent. So I thought there was something worth exploring there. I thought, hey, I'm going to write a book about hops and I'm going to go to hop festivals in uh, the Czech Republic and I'm going to go to the Yakima Valley for the hop harvest. And then thought, well, why not? Why, why stay at hops? You know, people don't understand what beer is made out of a lot of the time. So uh, there's incredible stories behind water and the sort of specificity of, of water and how beer styles are located in certain places because of the water that's perfect for them uh and malted barley and the way that changes and and the differences in style in different countries there so yeah it's a bit of a an, an opportunity for another I've, I've, I've missed it's been a long time since i've done a bit of uh, international travel for my writing and it's uh, uh an opportunity to get back into that really and you're also in, uh putting it out as a crowdfunding uh idea which surprises me a little bit i mean you've had three books uh man walks into a pub three sheets of wind and ipa um and there was a fourth one there hops and yeah glory. shakespeare's local hops and glory sorry uh hops and, and shakespeare's glory. local and yeah. shakespeare's local sorry that's it and uh you know you've got a great record uh, of publishing very well received books and yet uh you you found it a little bit hard to get the uh, advance necessary to to do the travel you need to write your next book, and uh, that says a lot about the state of the publishing industry, doesn't it? Well, I think the beer, I, th I think the crowdfunded model is a, is a little bit misunderstood, um, and this book is not the only one I'm working on. The, the thing is, I've been very fortunate to have four books about beer and pubs published by mainstream publishers and marketed by by publishers with big clout. The the thing about those mainstream publishers is they don't particularly uh, see a great future in beer books. Uh, they see they see slightly more future in my writing. So, so they're asking me to write stuff about things other than beer. And my last book, Shakespeare's Local, was was very much a social history book rather than a beer book. It was kind of one step away from the beer world. Uh, and my next book is uh, uh, through uh, Penguin Publishing is going to be about the the story of the apple. Uh, so really moving into sort of more broader food and drink territory. So, so that's all happening. But at the same time, I miss beer writing. I, I don't want to stop writing about beer. And uh, Unbound is a new publishing uh, model in the UK. I'm the editor from my first two books. The guy who, who worked with me on uh, Man Walks Into a Pub and Three Sheets to the Wind uh, went to work at Unbound and called me on, the, in, on his first day and said, have you got any ideas for beer books? We've got to do another beer book together. So uh, that happened very quickly and, and became a reality. So tell us a little bit about the uh, um, share funding model uh, in, that you're using in this case. How, do, how does that work? Yeah, it's been a bit it's, it's been a bit interesting because crowdfunding is being used for so much now in so many different ways, and there has been a little bit of suspicion uh, about this. But it's very straightforward. It's it's how publishing used to work. Um, basically, people uh, pledge a certain amount, and uh, and they get something directly in return for that amount. I'm not asking someone to give you £100 and you own the copyright of the bottom half of page 275, which, which you never see any benefit from. Uh, I'm basically asking people to buy a book uh, and pay for it uh, a little while before they actually get the book. So you pay £10 and you get an e-book uh, with your name in it. Uh, you pay £20 and you get an exclusive hardback edition. 
that isn't in the shops. Uh, you pay fifty pounds, you get you get that signed and dedicated. One hundred twenty pounds, you get that plus invites to the launch party and so on. So you get these different rewards for different pledge levels. Um, and then the beauty of the model is that if you don't want to pledge, if you're if you're comfortable with the idea of crowdfunding, once it's earned its total, we've covered the costs of the book. The book gets released. Uh, and then it gets released and behaves as a normal book. So a different edition, uh, different from the one that people get who pledged for it, goes into shops just like any other book would. So it's kind of a hybrid model. It's sort of got elements of crowdfunding and, and self-publishing and elements of a perfectly sort of mainstream uh, publishing deal that's no different from anybody else's, really. But you've received, you've copped some criticism for going down this route, haven't you? I think so. I think there's a misconception that I'm asking people to, to pay for me to swan off around the world and travel before I've written the book. Um, I don't actually get an advance under the Unbound model. Uh, what I do get is a, a much, much healthier share of profits once the book is published than I do under the conventional model. So um, I'm not asking people to, uh, uh, to, to give me a lot of money before I've written the book. Uh, I'm asking people to pay for the production costs of the book so it can come to market. But but I think part of the suspicion is that crowdfunding is being used for so many different things now, and there are so many different models of it. Um, and, you know, some of the... Over here right now, we've got uh, a brewery that is um, being sued for trademark infringements by another brewery that is crowdfunding its legal costs. <laughs> I mean... You know what? What? Why should I? As a, you know, so basically, that's that's just charity. That's that's effectively begging, I think. Um, and 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 it's. I think that's quite an ill-advised move. And if I say crowdfunding, and you think, oh well, so you're doing something like that, are you? You're 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 just kind of trying to go down this route because because you can't get a book published properly. Then there, there is a risk that people are going to think that. But uh, but but this model really is quite different. Well, it's an issue that. Uh... Earlier in this uh, podcast, we uh, touched on a, some guys who were looking at using that to import beer, um, which is a different model. And, uh, you know, it, it's up to people to either support it or not, I guess. But you, you do see some uh, cases where, for example, uh, Brewdog was criticized recently. They did a different model where they did their equity for punks, but they priced uh, the equity for punks at a vastly different value that they sold a share of the company to a you know, more formal equity investor. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I know that um, uh, Camden Town Brewery is sort of ruffled a few feathers recently with their equity funding model um, or their crowdfunding model. And uh, Stone has, has also walked into a little bit of trouble. So it does seem to be something that's a little bit fraught. But, uh, I mean, certainly... When it comes to publishing a book, it seems to be a, a good fit for creating something that would otherwise not be created. It's true. And in, in my last book, Shakespeare's Local, b before I'd, I was writing that before crowdfunding had become a thing. I, I hadn't heard the term. Uh, and I was interested. I, I came across a guy called John Taylor, who was self-styled uh, himself as the water poet. Uh, and he was this guy who wrote books in London uh, back in the 17th century. Uh, and this is how he used to do it. It was standard for the time. There weren't established publishing publishing houses. And the way you published a book was you got people to pledge money before the book was published. Uh, and then the, um, you know, the kind of dedication and the acknowledgements in the front of the book that in any book that you buy now is kind of the descendant of what people like Taylor had to do at the time, which is uh, thank you to all my sponsors, uh, all these people without whom um, the book wouldn't be possible. And every now and again, you get kind of one one sort of very rich patron who pays for the uh, for the book to be published. 
And the first few pages of the book will be a love letter to that patron almost about the, the, the many fine qualities this person has uh, and, and how brilliant they are. The great thing about Taylor's work is, uh, I mean, it's kind of going off on a tangent from my book, but I just found it too entertaining. Um, the book that I read where he mentioned the George Inn, which is why I was why I was researching him, uh, he takes to task the people who, who said they were going to pledge money uh, and then didn't follow through and didn't pay up. And so uh, he goes on this really long run to the front of this book about how the hangman's noose is too good for these people. <laughs> so, <laughs> Who saw him kind of endure penury during the writing of his book? <laughs> uh, this thanks task, which is brilliant. While we're on the on the topic uh, of, um, of of naming and shaming, I remember from the um, Hops and Glory came out, and I think was it two thousand and six or so. Two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Now, in your yeah. author's note, you changed three. Your author's note said that you've changed three of the names in the book. One for yes. legal reasons, and one because the person didn't want their name used. And one because the guy was a bit of a knob. Yeah. Is it is it far enough down the track now to name and shame? It or was is it always going to stay a secret? I've forgotten his real name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in in the in the book in the book he's a when we're on the sailing ship uh, crossing the Atlantic, uh, he's a German guy who uh, who I, I think I think if you read the book he, he just comes across as a bit of a knob. Uh, and I've I've forgotten his real name, but uh, but uh, he was the guy who would. Sit with his headphones on, sunbathing on the deck, listening to classical music and air conducting uh, the, the orchestra. And everything he said just seemed to be particularly twatish. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure he's not read the book. <laughs> now, if you're successful in raising the funds for the the, the new book, um, will we see you on Australian shores, or will you bypass us completely and uh, do what everyone else does and just go to New Zealand? <laughs> I would love to come back to Australia because I spent. When I was in, when I was doing three sheets, I spent ten days in Australia, and the 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 kind of mantra everyone I spoke to said, "Oh, you'll be going here though. Oh, you'll be going there though. No, can't, I haven't got time to go. Well, you must at least be going here. No, I've got time to go there." And uh, it was ridiculous. Obviously, I did five days in Sydney, five days in Melbourne, and said, "Yeah, that's Australia. That's obviously pathetically inadequate." And and I'd be insulted if someone came to London for five days and they went to Manchester for a weekend and said, "Yeah, I've done Britain." <laughs> um, it would be, be ridiculous. But uh, it's, the, it's the reality of trying to encompass the whole world in a book means that sometimes you, you have to do such insulting compromises, basically. Um, I'm not getting funded for the writing of this book. As I said, the, the crowdfunding bit pays for the production and the publication of the book rather than paying, paying me to write it. Um, so it depends how far my finances can stretch. And if, if there were passionate hop growers or maltsters or, or brewers in Australia who said your book wouldn't be complete without a visit to us and and we'll help you out in making that visit a reality then I'd be all ears. Well Tim Lord from Hop Products Australia was on the show last week so uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll make make sure he listens to this episode as well because uh, <laughs> yeah. he was spruiking uh, the uh, Galaxy Hop that has been the, uh, the the real revelation in the Australian yeah. craft brewing scene and a couple of the others that they've brought to market and uh, we have seen a real renaissance of uh, hop uh, making over here. And if perhaps if, yeah. um, Matt, if perhaps if a good friend of the program, Roger Ibbotson, for the uh, the head maltster down there at, uh, at Cascade, Cascade. Yes. is listening, then perhaps, you know, we might be able to sneak something into the budget there to get Pete a couple of days down in Tassie. I tell you what, Pete. If uh, we pull this off, we expect a bloody good love letter in the front uh, couple of pages of your new book. <laughs> I'll, I'll be praising your many fine qualities. <laughs> don't worry. 
But I know it would be great to see you down here, and because uh, you, you certainly did talk about the uh, the tradition of the shout and everything in some of your earlier books. I think it was Man Walked Into a Pub, or was it Man Walked Into a Pub or Three Sheets? So I, I, three I mixed sheets those. mainly. Three sheets. So um, what I loved when I was researching that book is that back in I mean that was you know over ten years ago now when I was when I was writing and researching that, and and what I loved is that I was trying to do something different with beer writing at the time. I think I think it's. It's not so different anymore because beer writing's exploded and expanded, and, and that's a good thing. But I've, I've always tried to write about about the culture around beer. Um, I, I still am not that interested in writing about beer styles and uh, and, and you know the, the brewing process and that kind of thing. Uh, and so I was trying to write about comparative drink beer drinking culture around the world, and I found that Australia was the only country where there was a an existing literature on this subject. I've, I've still got a, a shelf of about ten books. Uh, of books about the Australian way of drinking and books about Australian pubs. And there's no other country that I found back then that, that had celebrated the culture around it the same way Australia did. So I felt a real affinity. It's interesting you say that because uh, often it's a, a culture of drinking as opposed to a drinking culture, but that's probably uh, something that we would best leave for a whole other um, <laughs> There's a whole discussion. other podcast there. But, but it's right. Yeah. I mean, the, the I guess the... Um, the formality, if or the informal formality of, of the shout, um, it, it's kind of a very Australian way of, of, of sorting out who are the good blokes and who are the knobs. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's, yeah, Britain has a much more reserved version of it. I've always said that in Britain we need uh, uh, we need excuses to be sociable. Uh, we need reasons to sort of come together. We've got to kind of come up with something that breaks down the uh, uh, the formality and the stiffness between people uh, and everything from. Uh, the shout to having to get up and order at the bar rather than being served at your table. Uh, everything about the British pub reinforces this kind of breaking down social barriers. Uh, and I guess you guys have just kind of done it with a, a lot more enthusiasm and gusto than, uh, than we have here. Well, Pete, that's probably as good a time as any to leave it without going off for a whole other hour of our topics. Which but we could. Thank you. Which we easily could. We, we might even look at uh, sort of getting you on once or twice a year. Um, That'd be great. Sort of Keep touch uh, with what with what's going, particularly when the uh, the the book is uh, funded and looking at going ahead. So, what what's the close closure? I guess we should uh, round that out by saying, how can people support you if they uh, would really like to read your take on where does beer come from? Well, if you go to unbound.co.uk uh, and the title of the book is What Are You Drinking? So there's a there's a page there uh, where people can pledge. Um, I believe there's some quite. Uh, punitive shipping costs uh, to Australia, which I'm, I'm trying to talk to them about and get sorted out. Uh, but at the very least, there's an e-book there uh, which, which, you could, which you could pledge for. Uh, and people who pledge also get access to something called the Author's Shed, which is sort of a, a firewalled uh, blog space, really, where I'm asking people who've pledged uh, for the book, thinking, what else can I do? Uh, and I've asked, so I've asked people who pledge, say, okay, where should I go? Where should I travel to? What questions do you want to know about the ingredients of beer? Uh, so helping people really shape uh, the book in that way as well. That sounds excellent. We can't wait for it. And uh, we'll certainly put links to all of this in the show notes and uh, certainly get you on a little bit closer once it all goes ahead. Fantastic. Pete Brown, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. And most importantly, thank you very much for your uh, love and enthusiasm and great writing about all things beer. Thanks very much, Pete. Cheers. Thanks a lot. There you go, Pete, Pete Brown. I'd actually, there you go. A long, Pete, long Pete time Mitchum. coming. That yeah. was Pete Brown. Yeah. Now, well, I've been looking forward to to, uh, to speaking directly to Pete and just listening to it. It was, it was just, I mean, just great to listen to. 
And yeah, I mean, look, and, and I, if I can risk losing our G rating, the thing that shits me about Pete is he speaks as well as he writes. Um, he is just very eloquent, very passionate, very knowledgeable, and uh, mm. you know. Uh, you, you think that that's very – it's a little bit easier to do when you get to edit yourself the way that you do in writing, but he's just very, you know, a, a great guest. So, um, yeah, he, he was very enthusiastic. And great to hear too that, that I guess some of the, the growing pains that, that I guess craft in Australia perhaps is experiencing is uh, we're, we're not alone in the world. Um, and, and, you know, do we all end up maybe in 20 years' time, is, 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 does craft uh, as a global sort of phenomenon all end up with a in a, in a similar, you know, kind of – does it find its its level? And and, and Pete Brown's one of those guys uh, who um, very much loves beer, um, as he said in the interview. And he's just always wanted to be able to have a good beer in a good pub, um, and and that's it. But he still doesn't have the um, you know the, the the blinkers on and not see the problems. And uh, there are a handful of writers um, that I recommend that everybody follows uh, through social media and through their blogs. Uh, Stephen Beaumont, who we spoke to a few weeks ago, is one of them, and Pete Brown is another. So um, jump we're online. Some and... big names, man. We're getting some big names. Well, mate, this, going back to the the very first start, this is the thing. People want to come on the show. Um, people, you know, ask us to come on the show, and uh, you know, Bruce News, uh, Australian Bruce News, in all of its many uh, media and forms, <laughs> is growing up. But look, having said that, we do have a producer who uh, keeps his eye on the clock, Lockie. Hopefully we've given you some uh, nice content to, uh, you know, cleanly edit there. But, Pete, always good to uh, chat. Um, you know, love, love your work and uh, you're a bloke who uh, always should be read. Um, but we, we might sort of uh, carry on and... Uh, Strike out the van and get out of here. The way things let are going. Let everyone get back to work or off the train or uh, finish mashing in and uh, go and have morning tea. And we'll be back next week. And we're out.